Welcome to ESG Decoded Podcast. I'm Amanda Shea, and today I have with me Piper Wilder from 60 Hertz. Hi, Piper. Hi, Amanda. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I'm excited for this conversation, excited to learn more about microgrids, about human-centered design, and I'm sure a lot of in between that. But first of all, will you tell everyone about 60 Hertz and how you founded the company? I'd happily share the origin story. Around about 2016, I had moved from Colorado to Alaska, and it was the first time that I had the chance to really understand what a microgrid, despite a career working in renewable energy, I was really unfamiliar with this increasingly common building block for energy resiliency. In the Alaskan case, microgrids have been powering remote indigenous Alaska native communities for more than 50 years. And so the reason for this is because of the Rural Electrification Act of the 1920s, when we knew that we would bring power to rural parts of the United States and including our territories. So Alaska has 200 indigenous communities that cannot be reached other than by plane or boat. There isn't road infrastructure, transmission lines for electricity. And so each of these communities needed a microgrid and it was far before it was a sexy term for resiliency, but effectively was a little mini power system predominantly powered by diesel generators, which is still largely the case today. However, Alaska has invested I think more per capita than any other state in the country in renewable energy. And it's in large part to decrease the cost of power in our remote communities. So fast forward, by the time I was in Alaska, a real newbie to the state, this idea of how microgrids were being operated was really in discussion in the boardrooms and conferences that I was attending because the question was, how can we help people on the front lines of rural electrification ensure that a diesel generator remains operational, ensure that new battery assets, ensure that wind and solar were achieving their full useful life, particularly in a place that didn't have a lot of trained personnel or where reaching the site might take an expensive plane flight or a long travel day. So I ended up starting 60 Hertz Energy as a computerized maintenance management system company, a CMMS. Though at the time, I didn't even know what a CMMS was, and I just thought, we need a maintenance app. We need something simple for people in low bandwidth to be successful documenting their maintenance work and following instructions. Fast forward to today, we are now active all across Alaska, as well as the Canadian Arctic, and half of our user base are also in Sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, uh, coming to Benin. And these are places where rural electrification has brought microgrids as a tool for sustainability and for bringing power to people that don't have it as well. Other people using our software have distributed energy resources broadly. So that can also include solar arrays, battery storage systems, EV charging. And so 60 Hertz has kind of grown and expanded that way. Um, just a small note. So our team is headquartered in Alaska, but scattered globally. And we have hundreds of customers and hundreds of sites in a variety of verticals. And it's just been a joy to see the, the company grow these years. I think it's such an interesting concept because where I'm based, I'm based in Houston, Texas. You just turn on the light switch, the light comes on. You don't think anything more about it. But really, there are many areas where it's not as simple as that. You can't tie into Highline Power. It just doesn't exist. So yeah. that's where microgrids come into play. 
when I think of a microgrid in kind of our context in 2022, I'm always thinking of a solar panel powered grid, but I'm taking that doesn't have to be. Well, microgrids you know, can be broader than that. They can be broader and narrower. I think there's some frustration in the industry that there isn't mm -hmm. a single definition today of what a microgrid is. But I'll tell you what we commonly see named a microgrid or kind of the flexibility of that term. So certainly in the emerging market context, you would talk about village power, which is largely what I focused on so far in terms of often a diesel generator for prime or backup power. And then depending on the location or the budget available, this rural electrification activity would include a battery and solar or a battery and other renewable input. It can be run of river hydro we've seen, it can be wind, small wind, or of course solar. In Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a lot of solar battery systems with no diesel at all. And we're talking about the scale of 15 to 100 kilowatts AC installed. Now, we would also identify the kinds of microgrids that we see for uh, even larger communities and more established locations that simply don't have main power that could serve 5,000 people and be several megawatts, but similarly disconnected from transmission or distribution infrastructure. And then finally, the kind of microgrid that I think most of your listeners will be familiar with would be for resiliency. So perhaps at a data center or critical infrastructure site where it would be a battery energy storage system, perhaps some on-site generation with solar, wind, etc., and as well a backup diesel generator. And again, we're talking about a scale of 100 to 500 up to a megawatt of power that, again, would be purely for a resiliency purpose, uh, though there would be grid power available at the site as well. We talk a lot about sustainability, but even underlying that, we have to have um, energy security. In some areas, if they're that remote, it's not only just how to produce energy, um, electricity, but also how do you continue producing it years and years and years and really make get the most out of that initial investment? I'm thinking that's where 60 hertz energy comes into play. Well, that's it. And I think for all of my own work in the sustainability sector, just like you over the years, we have all been quite focused on how do we finance projects? How do we engineer them? What's the optimal hardware to be incorporated? We're really all at the first hundred days of a project. And yet these are assets that will function for 10 to 15 to 25 and 30 years, depending on if it's an inverter or solar panel, et cetera. And so thank you for the segue to let me step on my soapbox because this is really what we care most about is helping to remind folks that the ribbon cutting is simply day one of any asset that we install. And that much more attention needs to be invested and how we look after the asset, how we service it, the personnel that are responsible for this infrastructure, and how warranties work. All of this is the fruit, the meat of a true operations and maintenance strategy, O&M. And yet, sadly, it's often an afterthought. People have two pages of a manual, if that, devoted to it. And we tend to simply replace things instead of repairing these assets when really we could be getting a lot more economic efficiency out of ensuring that they remain optimized and functional for their full useful life. So, so that in fact is 60 Hertz mission is to help assets of many different kinds achieve their full useful life and that the people who maintain them can achieve their full potential. And that's really being more sustainable in the end. You know, the supply, the, the amount of energy, the amount of carbon, the amount of materials, the extraction to make anything. 
and make it last as long as possible is the more sustainable way. Oh, thank you. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, our tagline is that maintenance is true sustainability. And maintenance is often overlooked. It's not very, you know, it's never mm-hmm. in the limelight. It's a little bit greasy and practical, but it is the essence of really sustainability. In our intro call, we talked about how you designed the apps to be human-centered. I want to understand more about that. Tell us more about human-centered design. Oh, well, it's a joy to think about this part of our product development and product history. But I'll start by saying a big epiphany for me and and my co-founder, Tanya James, who is just a pleasure to work with on a day in and day out basis now in our sixth year. What was important to us is that people who are historically marginalized were included in these good long-term maintenance jobs of the future. I will note that statistically, maintainers, maintenance personnel are often minorities and they're often people that may not have had the same opportunities in life because of where they grew up or location as those of us in more urban places, at least in our business model and in working in more rural places. And so the trend, the impulse, and we talk with developers frequently who just want to automate around the human, just get rid of those lousy, not reliable humans. And I can appreciate from an engineering standpoint why we do have automation and we do have SCADA and we have control technology that might create that impression that that's actually possible. If you talk with anyone who's actually had a fleet of assets deployed in the field for more than about five minutes, they'll start laughing as soon as you touch on this subject because invariably um, vermin come and shoot through conduit, invariably something floods, invariably something catches on fire. And if it hasn't yet, it will shortly. And that's really where a human has to be involved in troubleshooting and repairing and correcting and fixing that you simply can't do remotely. And so with that background and that sober reality that humans are, of course, important and valuable, we became aware in the early days of the company that there was a discipline called human-centered design. And if you're unfamiliar with this, it's such a, I think, poetic and valuable way that we ultimately bring a product to market. So human-centered design by definition is to ask end users a series of questions about their whole day and their whole life and their whole workflow in order to listen carefully between the lines and derive that product solution. It's a law of gravity that if I asked you what you want your product to do, you will give me an answer based on Amanda and your workflow and your day. And then I'll work hard investing in that product and designing that product, whether it's software or a pair of shoes or a lunchbox. And then I'll hand it back to you and you'll say, that's not exactly what I was expecting. That's close, but that's not exactly. And then if we asked five other people, it would all be different. And so human-centered design attempts to see around corners and also to bring insight and creativity and most importantly, empathy for our users in the products that we bring forward. So that's all kind of Again, poetic and high level, what does it really look like? In our case, we did not know how to conduct a human-centered design interview on our own. So we reached out to a colleague who ended up being a phenomenal partner to us early days and is experienced in the human-centered design inquiry from a variety of perspectives, whether it's educational content and course development to software tools. And so our consultant helped us 
identify a questionnaire, a replicable questionnaire that we would ask to a host of different kinds of potential users of our software. And then we conducted countless field visits. It's very important to go to where someone is working and would ultimately be using your product. It's very hard to do accurately if it's at a desk because invariably what they tell you they want or how they tell you that they work is different and you look over their shoulder and you say yes but i see that maintenance manual you were just saying you lost on the shelf or why aren't you using it or i see that you know what's up what's on your whiteboard over here that's where the real meat and the juicy stuff comes out so one of our, my favorite stories about this human-centered design work was that naturally we were starting in a fairly challenging environment and also user-based because it was remote Alaska, the remote Arctic. So getting to our users in these indigenous Alaska Native, Native American villages was really hard. But nonetheless, we chartered planes, we flew above the Arctic Circle. It was at a point in my life that I had just had our first child. And so I was nursing and my little baby came with us in the airplane as we would travel to these remote locations and sit with the operators and spend time and ask questions and record the interviews, dutifully document some of the key learnings. And then that all of that content comes back and this is really the skill of a product manager and the skill of, of the product designer to to listen to hear questions from the interview and to distill what the user really wants to do what does the user really want to accomplish in their day and how is your product adding to that which you hear is a much different question than saying what do you want the product to do it's what does the user really need to accomplish what is the job to be done for that user and, you know, some of the questions I, I will never forget, we were interviewing a diesel mechanic who works for Caterpillar and the, the, the local office. And our consultant said, well, what's the best part of your day? And he said something like feeling good about the job well done. And he and they said, well, what's the worst part of your day? What's the worst part of this job? And he said, well, I'm on the road 80% of the time and in small planes in very remote communities. And I have a family. And this big burly guy teared up and it was just such a poignant moment for me in our product evolution because if we told him what you know ask what do you want to do he'd say I, I need to document the maintenance that i'm doing but what he really wanted was to have more time with his family and so an important part of what we've ultimately brought forward will enable certain observations or preventative maintenance actions to be recorded at site which will economize the time that this gentleman would need to spend on planes away from the family. That became an important side effect of, of what we wanted to ultimately create with our app. I love that. What a poignant example as well of how these principles are applied. You just get a better product. You just get a better product. Yeah. Yep. And that's mm -hmm. really bringing value to the market. Yep. Wonderful. Well, Piper, thank you so much for being my guest today. We will obviously link up 60 Hertz Energy in our show notes. So if anyone wants to find out more information or connect, that will be the easiest way. But I really appreciate you and sharing everyone about microgrids and the 60 Hertz Energy uh, story. Thank you, Amanda. It's a joy to be with you and really appreciate the chance to, to share our work with your listeners. Mm -hmm.